You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. Well, good morning. Welcome, welcome. Happy Father's Day. I did... I did want to share that a dear friend of mine, Robin Brinkley, passed away recently, and um, that's Amanda Torrey's dad, and I have such warm, great memories of uh, Robin. Of course, I knew all the the Brinkley kids when they were barely people. They were so young, so I can remember... um, Watching Robin, and this is this is for you, Amanda. I can remember watching uh, Robin and John Mark, maybe Christopher too, fishing at the surf, and we used to go down to the beach, and rent houses, and uh, Robin and Sandra were uh, your folks were always so kind to my kids, and um, they were really really special uh, the way they treated our kids, maybe better than they treated you. I don't know. But uh, anyway, God bless you and all of your folks as you uh, navigate these coming days here. But um, anyway, Robin went home. That's what he did. He went home. And uh, it's wonderful to know that uh, the gospel boldly proclaims that we don't mourn as those with no hope. Um the resurrection is real, and the reality that Robin is with Jesus in that realm is absolutely real. So anyway, be praying for their family, the Tories and the Brinkleys and all those other girls, married people. I can't remember their names, but uh, anyway. Okay, Father's Day. I'm going to preach a little bit out of Isaiah 42. It's going to take me a while to get there. And I love preaching out of the Old Testament. Um, it's actually the only Bible the apostles had. And um, we'll look into some things this morning. I think it will really be meaningful. One of the things that struck me is that every day was Father's Day to Jesus. And he was totally devoted to his father. And over and over again in the Gospels, he referred to God as Father. Actually, there, um, I don't know, as many as between 20 and 30 Old Testament um, names, um, compound names for God, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Sidkenu, Jehovah Rapha, all of these different titles and names that are used down through uh, the Old Testament But when Jesus talked about the relationship he had with God, he used the term Father almost exclusively. And um, Jesus boldly proclaimed a number of things. He said, I and my Father are one. He said, for the Father loves the Son. He said, I do whatever pleases my Father. He said, I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. 
He said, the works I do, I don't do, but the Father in me, he does the works. A little bit of a mystical truth there. And then Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. And this is a very small um, sampling of some of the things Jesus said in relation to his Father. But from an early age, Jesus developed a marked um, specific relationship with God as his Father, even as a 12-year-old boy. After Jesus' family attended the feast in Jerusalem, he decided to stay back for several days. He just didn't tell his, he didn't tell Mary and Joseph, uh, which is uh, pretty interesting and um, pretty independent 12-year-old, I would say. Uh, his parents didn't know where he was, and when they finally found him, he was in the temple. And we find this in John 5, 46 through 49. I'll read this. Now, so it was that after three days they found Jesus in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So the scribes and the Pharisees were astonished at a 12-year-old's understanding and answers. So when they saw him, his parents saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And then Jesus said, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And um, anyway, the Bible tells us that really gave Joseph and Mary cause to ponder what Jesus was saying. But at 12 years old, he had a mature, insightful relationship with his father. Um, in the book of John, Jesus, Jesus used the term father over 175 times. And it was basically, I mentioned this earlier, the only way he described their relationship. One of Jesus' primary purposes in, uh, in coming was to reveal the father. John 14, 8 through 11, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the father and it's sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Well, Jesus was exactly like his Father. He was the express image of God. Hebrews 1, 3 has this phrase in it about Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and then Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And Colossians 2.9 says, For in him, or in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. And I think about this verse too. I, I really love this. For the Father loves the Son 
Let me read that. This is what Jesus understood. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. And that's why I say to Jesus every day was Father's Day. I want to, I want to talk some, and, and to me, this is one of the most important understandings we can have as believers. Because Jesus' foundation is our foundation. The way Jesus related to the Father is the same way we can relate to the Father. And the way the Father related to the Son is the same way He relates to us or He wants to relate to us. Actually, um, a number of years ago, uh, I, I don't know how it works, but how many of you believe God communicates with us? Anybody okay with that? Not going to be spooked out, but, um, so let me just say the Lord spoke to me. That'll make it easier, although it wasn't audible. But as I was waking up one morning, um, I felt the Lord communicate this to me. Each one of my children is my own personal favorite. I just want that to land. Each one of my children is my own personal favorite. And then he said, but very few believe it. Very few believe it. We have trouble believing we're God's favorite. Um, I have problems. Everybody's not my favorite person. <laughs> because I don't have the capacity. But God has the capacity. It doesn't even stretch him for each one of you to be his own personal favorite. And what he wants is he wants you to know that and he wants you to be able to relate to him that way. But when you look at Jesus' foundation, from what concept, idea, understanding did his life come out of? Um, what, what was Jesus' why for life? And Jesus' why for life was that he was absolutely loved by his father. Um, when you look at Jesus, um, before his ministry began, he was baptized by John the Baptist. Uh, everybody, you know, if Jesus needed to get baptized in water, you do too. We need to have another baptism. So we'll talk about that on down the road. But, um, Jesus was baptized in water by John the Baptist and as he came up out of water, Mark 1.11, and this is recorded in several of the Gospels, I think in three of them, then a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the thing about that we need to understand is that before Jesus began his ministry, before he performed one miracle, cast out one demon, preached a message, he heard his father say to him, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, the reality is what Jesus, what the father says over Jesus, he also says over you. What the father says over Jesus, he actually says over you. Um, 
Your acceptance and your approval comes first. Your behavior comes after it. And the reality of the gospel is God loves everybody. God loves you as you are, but he doesn't want to stay at you to stay that way. Do you understand that um, knowing the love of God should have a transformational aspect to your life? It's not God loves me as I am and I'm just going to continue on down this path. No, that really is not the gospel. Uh, the woman in adultery, Jesus asked her, who condemns you? You know the story, no one condemns you. So what did Jesus say? Well, carry on. No, he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And so the gospel needs to be transformational if it's real to us. And we begin to be transformed when we begin to know the heart of God. Um, the love the Father had for the Son, His acceptance and His approval was freely given and never earned. It was received and not achieved. Alan Platt likes to say that. The love of God was received, not achieved. And it's the same way with us. And if we get this wrong, we're on a faulty foundation. Somebody read John 1.12. It's not on the overhead. I just wanted to see the folks in the back panic. But John 1.12 reads this way. But as many as received him, say received him, somebody. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become. The right to what? Become children of God. To those who believe in his name, as many as received him, God's love in bringing us into his family is not achieved, but it's received. It comes by receiving and believing in Jesus. We're born into a relationship, born again into a relationship that grows and develops on the same basis. That's the basis of the goodness of God. It's the basis of the grace of God. Knowing the unearned, freely given love and acceptance of God is the primary and essential key in being a healthy Christian. Who needs to hear that again? I do. Knowing. Let, let me tell you this. Um, I hope if you weren't here, you heard Matt Peterson's message from last week. It was about very similar topic. But one of the things Matt talked about was um, paying attention to the fact that God loves you personally. And he had some process. He had some ideas. He had some concepts about it. And it's always struck me in Galatians 2.20. I'm jumping out of my notes here, but um, it's worth it. Where's Galatians? Anybody see where I put Galatians? Galatians 2.20, real familiar verse. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. And listen to Paul's words here. Live in the faith, by faith of the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. I've read this Bible for a long time, but at one point it struck me. Paul. So Paul writes a letter to someone else talking about the love of God, and he doesn't write who loves you and gave himself for you. He doesn't even say who loves us and gave himself for us. What does he say? Who loved me and gave himself for me. What is Paul doing? Paul is reminding himself about God's heart for himself. And that's something we need to learn how to do. I remember just uh, first, second, third John, the writer, John, um, uses the term beloved. Somebody just say beloved. 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 Be loved. Here's your job description as a believer. Be loved. You're his beloved. And if you being loved permeates you to the degree that it should, you will be an asset to everyone around you everywhere you go. Because we're going to discover in Isaiah 42 how essential it was in Jesus' life to know that he was the beloved. Um, knowing the unearned, freely given love and acceptance of God is the primary and essential key in being a healthy Christian. That's the basis of our identity. Being loved by God as a father is his opinion of you. Having that identity is the key to intimacy with God. When, when you are convinced that God loves you, period, it will release in you the capacity to be close to him, to commune with him, to be interested in who he is. That identity, being loved, is the key to intimacy with God. He validates us. That's our starting point as believers. That's not where we're headed. That's where we start. That's where you begin. And if you haven't started there, you've started on a faulty foundation. We don't work for favor. We work from it. It's freely given, not the result of performance. <laughs> Come on. You function from the place that God's pleasure is already on your life. I might say that about a dozen more times this morning. But that is the key to transformation and intimacy. It comes as a result of knowing God's loving kindness. I'm going to skip through a couple of things. Let me read this, though. This is phenomenal. Hebrews 11, I mean Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, and I believe we've got that verse overhead. And I want us to pay special attention to the first part of verse 2, but it goes, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in the last day spoken to us how? By his son. Now, if you sort of read the un, um, if you read what was actually written, the writer says basically that in these last days, God has spoken to us by son. 
by son, not just by his son, not just the words of Jesus, which obviously are part of it, but the language God finally uses to communicate with the world is son, daughter, child. It's not just male, obviously. That's his language. That's his ultimate communication. God's ultimate final word to us is Jesus. Jesus was God's message, God's method, heaven's revelation of who the Father is, was, and evermore shall be, and who we are to him, sons and daughters. His heart to us, his love language is the language of son. And when you have confusion over what God's actually like, Jesus really does resolve um, all that Old Testament understanding. You, you, you look at the Old Testament and say, why did God do this or do that? Let's, let's go look somewhere else. Let's go look in the New Testament. Jesus was the express image of his Father. If you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. It's, that's pretty simple. Now, uh, John five thirty nine. Jesus said, you search the scripture for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And so what I want us to look at, maybe primarily this morning, I've given you a little um, introduction. I want us to look at how Jesus' understanding of being the son of the father, a child of God, actually affected him. And I want to do it by looking at Isaiah 42, verse 1. So when they have that up there, somebody uh, wave at me or wink. Let's read verse 1 together. Behold, my servant who I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Verse 1, we'll just stop there. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I mentioned that the Old Testament was the only Bible the apostles had. Isaiah 42, verse 1, that section, Behold my servant whom whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, is the equivalent, the direct equivalent to the audible voice of God that came to Jesus after his baptism, which was this. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And so when you read Isaiah 42, you're actually reading about characteristics of Jesus himself and anyone who understood the love of God and how it actually affects your life. Are you with me? You follow my logic. So you don't need to read it along, but let me read the rest of this. Verse 2, he will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Then verse 6, 
I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. And verse 13, the Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out. Yes, shout out aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. And what you begin to see here is how knowing the love of God affects you. In that verse 1, it says he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Jesus was not politically correct. Jews were not necessarily concerned about helping the nations, but Jesus was. A number of times he ministered to people that were non-Jews that got him in a lot of trouble because Jews lived by a very strict code of moral conduct as far as their association with non-Jews. But being secure in the love of God enabled Jesus, and it enables us to help people who aren't like us. That's an aspect of knowing the love of God. The second one, verse 2, he will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. He will not pursue getting attention out of insecurity. Jesus did not need to satisfy his own ego. Do you know why? He didn't have an ego. No, that's probably not true. But he knew the love of God to the degree that he was secure. He didn't have to prove he was anointed. He never needed to prove himself to anyone because the only audience he had when it came to these things was an audience of one, and that was his father. He didn't establish his own security through his function or his performance He didn't do what he did to gain attention as a false comfort. Down in verse 13, it says this, though. He shall cry out aloud. Yes, he shall shout aloud. He shall go forth like a mighty man. But Jesus was bold. When it was time to fulfill his calling and function in his ministry, he had no trouble crying out or shouting out because Jesus had no fear of men. When you know the Lord's care for you, you're not afraid of men. Anybody interested in any of these characteristics personally? He will not abuse authority. Verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break in smoking flax. He will not quench. What does that mean? It means he doesn't need to prove his authority by abusing or rejecting others who are weak. One of the things I've noticed even in the ministry world is leaders often don't want to attach themselves to anybody but people that are strong. They're intimidated somehow or made insecure or it hurts their image to associate people with people who are weak. And that's what it talks about, a bruised reed. He won't break. Smoking flax, he won't quench. Something that's barely a flame, he won't put out. Jesus was not afraid to identify with weak people. He didn't need to respond poorly to affirm his own strength or security. People's weakness didn't threaten him or intimidate him or bother him to appear weak in the eyes of others around him. Jesus was completely free from the fear of man or the need to be approved by them. That's amazing. Now, part of 
what I want to do today is tell you, point to the ultimate benefits of knowing the love of God. How many of you have some fear of man? Yeah. Yeah, and if you don't think you do, it'll be interesting when it happens. But one of the things that can happen to us, the more we know God's heart, the less, number one, we need to be approved by people. Number two, the less we need to be afraid. Here's a um, great verse out of Isaiah 53 too. I want to say Jesus found his life in his father's care. And Isaiah 53 verse 2 says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. Somebody just say tender plant. He should grow up before him as a tender plant. This is a description of Jesus. And as a root out of dry ground. That seems contradictory. He should grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus grew up as a tender plant because he grew up before him. That was where his view was, his father. Even though he was a root out of a dry ground, even though he was in difficult circumstances. Point number two, he was not naturally attractive. Yet he grew up perfectly adjusted in the presence of his father. And we talked about what he did at the age of 12. And this is so important to know. If you read Isaiah 53, it describes, it has a description of a man, and the description of a man is a man that's not naturally attractive. What if Jesus was ugly? What if he wasn't naturally handsome? I'm sure he didn't have blonde hair. He wasn't a white Anglo-Saxon, probably wasn't a Protestant either. I don't know. <laughs> he was Jewish. But Jesus found his sense of self not even from his own appearance, but from who he began to know that his father was. I like to say that he forged out his identity in the 30 silent years when only his father knew who he was. He trusted God. And Jeremiah 17 tells us that trusting God really has its own reward. It says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert. Hear this. Shall not see when good comes. Doesn't say good doesn't come. It says if you don't trust the Lord, good can come, but you don't recognize it. Man, that is so potent. But you'll inhabit the parched places in the wilderness and assault land which is not inhabited. Trusting God has its own reward. I struggle with trusting God sometimes. Anybody in that company? Yeah. Actually, well, this happened recently. I was worried about something, and I had an impression from the Lord 
that he was sad over it. He was sad that I wasn't trusting him. That really helped me trust him more. He wasn't mad. It's like it broke his heart that he was so trustworthy and I wasn't relying on him to the degree he knew I could. Man, that is so good, Robin. Good word, brother, preacher, man. Father's Day, 2023. (laughs) God's going to make me humiliate myself here in a minute. All right, verse 4. He will not fail or be discouraged. What if God is saying to us that we don't have to fail or be discouraged? Jesus couldn't fail because of the life he got from his father. He lived in a conscious sense of the father's delight and discouragement never gained ascendancy over his life until he bore our discouragement on the cross. His focus remained sure until his mission was accomplished. It actually says he won't fail or be discouraged because he held the father's hand. God wants us to hold hands with him. Grab a hand with somebody. Yeah. A hold hands with God. He wants you to hold hands with you. I just wanted you to get the idea of what holding hands actually meant. Jesus' calling was secure. Oh, here it is. I jumped the gun. Verse 6. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I need to start singing a Beatles song right now. I want to hold your hand. That's what God's saying. I want to hold your hand. I want to hold you. Okay. I want to hold your hand. That's what the Lord's saying. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. That is such an important phrase. I will give you, Jesus, as a Covenant to the people. Jesus himself is the new covenant. That's why it can't be broken. That's why it's never rescinded. The old covenant depended on our obedience, and we weren't obedient, so the old covenant didn't work. The new covenant was based on obedience too, but Jesus' obedience. So when Jesus was perfectly obedient, He qualified to become a living covenant that even death could not contain. Death could not even contain the new covenant we have with God because that covenant was the person of the Lord Jesus. I didn't put up verse 19, but verse 19 actually tells us in uh, Isaiah 42 that Jesus was never, never distracted. So here's what I want us to realize. What is it to know God as our Father? It means we don't have to be intimidated. It means we can be secure. We don't have to be insecure. It means that we don't have to be relationally abusive. 
It means we can grow in difficult circumstances and flourish. It means we can learn how to trust our Father. It means that we can master and overcome failure and discouragement. And it means we can be bold and focused. Here's what I want us to do. I've got a prayer I wrote. I believe we've got it. Is it on the overhead? How many of you want all these attributes of knowing God? Well, let's do this. Let's stand together. And I want us to pray this together, and then Shelly will come back up. First of all, before we pray it out loud, I want everybody to read it. Read it. Just read through it. Okay, let's pray this together. Let's pray it one sentence at a time. And after we pray that sentence, let's stop and think about what we're asking, okay? All right, the first one. Lord, show us the Father. That's our prayer, Lord. Show us who you are over and over, more and more. Okay, the next one. Open our hearts to embrace and know your love in deeper ways. That's our heart cry, Lord. Help us open to you. Open the eyes of our understanding, like Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians, that we might know. And the last one, open our eyes to the way you think about us, the way you feel about us, and what you have done for us through your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.